Talkless Water, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resources Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Texas Plus Water and the Texas Water Journal, as well as your host for Talkless Water. This is a rare day when I've got two people here live with me uh, for this podcast, and we're going to talk about Comanche Springs. My guests today are Robert Mace, the Interim Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State, and Charlene Lurie, CEO of Texas Water Trade. Robert, Charlene, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So let's start out with your backgrounds in water. Uh, Robert, uh, how did you first become involved with water issues? I guess I, I be, first became uh, interested in in um, water issues in terms of like applying science to water issues was back in the 90s when I worked at the Bureau of Economic Geology and I had a project with Texas Commission Environmental Quality on leaky petroleum storage tanks, basically storage tanks that were leaking gasoline beneath gasoline stations. And it was a real intense short fuse project, um, you know, a lot of work, but it was very satisfying to do policy relevant science, um, to see science almost immediately get used by policymakers to inform decisions. And once I did that study, um, I was bit by the bug and, uh, you know, wound up working for the state for 20 years and, and, uh, now, um, at Texas state and, uh, still, um, looking for ways to use science to help policy. Charlene, how about you? I'd been working with institutional investment funds, um, looking at kind of global macroeconomic natural resource trends, and um, had colleagues working on water. Uh, started getting interested in it during the California drought that preceded this last big California drought, and um, that's kind of how I started dipping my toe in in the subject matter. And I'd grown up in Texas, but was living on the East Coast for a long time. Um, ended up moving back to Texas right when the severe drought that hit us most recently um, was kind of in um, its worst year. So I moved back at the end of 2011, and um, it was right around the time that I wanted to start um, moving uh, more into solutions and more into working on kind of regional planning and regional solutions. So it was right place, right time. And so today we're here to talk about the work that y'all are doing at Comanche Springs. So let's start out with uh, some background about Comanche Springs. Robert, how how to get its name? Um, great question. Um, you know, the name the Native Americans had for the springs has been been lost to history. Near as I can tell, I haven't come across it. Um, Spanish explorer Cabeza de Vaca is thought to have passed through the area and probably stopped at the springs in 1534. Um, unclear if he gave the springs a name. Um, Juan de Mendoza passed through in 1684, and he called them uh, San Juan del Rio. Hmm. Um, U.S. Army Captain um, William Henry Chase Whiting reached the springs in 1849, and he called them Awache. 
um, which is Comanche for, for wide water. Hmm. Um, which back in those days, it was a pretty wide, wide stream coming out of those springs. Um, but it was a little after that that uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was an interpreter on his expedition, um, gave the springs the name Comanche. And I think obviously because the Comanche Indians were, were in that area, and that was a very important stop, as you can imagine, in dry West Texas for water, um, for Native Americans and, and really anybody out in that area. So they were a, the springs were a focal point for uh, all the peoples who had come to that region uh, going back thousands of years and uh, were a focal point for settlement. Yeah. And uh, tell us about the flow from those springs, a little bit more about that uh, before they became intermittent. So the, it's, it's thought, you know, based on the species that used to be in the springs, foreshadowing, they dried up, <laughs> um, that uh, you know, they're at least flowing, um, you know, back beyond the previous ice age. So we're, we're talking thousands and thousands of years, a consistent flow. Um, there was uh, um, there's some early measurements by the U.S. Geological Survey around 1900 that um, suggest a flow of maybe around 30,000 gallons per minute coming out of those springs. Uh, later on, when there were more consistent measurements of flow, starting in the 1930s, we're seeing about 40,000 gallons per minute coming out of those springs. And that's really before the first large wells were drilled? Correct. Wells? Correct. So just to put it um, in context, Comanche was thought to have been one of the five largest springs in Texas before development. If you've been to Austin and gone swimming in Barton Springs, it was probably around the same size, somewhere between 30 and 35 million gallons of water a day. Um, it probably looked a lot different from what we think of when we think of springs today, where we're used to pools that were created by the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps in, in the Depression, right, where there's a downstream dam kind of impounding that water. You get these nice deep swimming holes. I think, Robert, you came across something that estimated maybe the depth of Comanche Springs at its deepest point might have been about 16 feet or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I think that Comanche Springs, like some of the adjacent springs, many of which, but not all of which, are now dry as well. Uh, Leon Springs, which was maybe seven miles west of there. Um, Diamond Y Springs, which still flows today, much, much smaller, but um, just north of Fort Stockton. All of these springs, including Comanche, would have fed probably pretty shallow wetlands um, that would have threaded across that landscape. Um, so um, Cienegas is basically what they were. If you've gone to Balmeray and you've seen the Cienega exhibit there, um, that'll give you a sense of what those complexes probably looked like. And, and all of that surface water from those springs um, probably fed in together from, from Leon to Comanche to Diamond Y, uh, flowed for a little while and then were lost uh, again to groundwater in the Pecos Alluvium, maybe moving below ground to the Pecos River. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, as uh, Robert had mentioned, uh, there were some unique uh, species associated with those springs. Can you tell us a little bit more about those, Shirley? Yeah, so as Robert mentioned, um, 
the reason we think that the springs flowed uninterrupted for thousands of years is um, before 1950, spoiler alert, um, there were some um, pretty unique species of fish, one in fact which at that time would only have been found at Comanche Springs uh, is a pupfish that's genetically distinct from the pupfish that was even found seven miles away in Leon Springs. They're still considered distinct uh, species despite that close proximity. Um, the Comanche Springs pupfish no longer exists in Pecos County. Um, it actually uh, is is managed in refugia, including at Balmeray. If you've gone to San Solomon Springs, there's Comanche Springs pupfish that you can swim with there. Um, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation uh, manages a species of them slightly farther west um, at uh, Phantom Springs Complex. And then uh, in the town of Toya Vale, uh, Giffen Springs uh, also has a, a population of Comanche Springs pupfish. Um, the Pecos Gambusia, a little mosquito fish, which you can see in, in all those springs probably also, I think, was identified there um, before the springs dried up. And then there were tons of, of birds that would have used these wetlands complexes as well, both resident and migratory birds. So if you're familiar with Comal and San Marcos Springs from the Edwards, they've got a number of endemic species that uh, evolve there under unique conditions and uh, they're distinctive uh, from other species. Imagine that uh, there are probably some species that uh, existed at Comanche Springs that we don't even really know about at this point. I mean, after they dried up some of the things that might have been unique, they're probably lost. And so, um, you know, I've kind of wondered about that. I wonder, you know, what might have uh, pieces of the jigsaw puzzle might have been lost uh, back in the 50s when, as you foreshadowed, they went intermittent. And so, so what happened, Robert? Well, the short answer is uh, pumping from, from water wells. Uh, longer answer is that, um, you know, as the technology for uh, pumping became more affordable for farmers and pumps got small enough diameter that you could run them down whole, um, Texas and really the country saw um, uh, lots of wells drilled across, across the state and across the country. And anywhere that folks found water and there was good soil and they were drilling wells to, to farm. And so that happened uh, and it's about seven miles west of Fort Stockton. Uh, the geology happens to be just right to uh, produce water from um, the Edwards formation. So like the Edwards that feeds uh, uh, San Marcos and Kamal Springs, you know, it forms the Edwards Plateau and is all the way up through through Fort Stockton, and uh, and that's kind of the the sweet spot. Um, and so once uh, some folks identified some good wells, um, they started irrigating. Um, meanwhile, drought of the '50s was starting, and back to the springs, um, you know, those flows that came out and there's some glorious photos of, of from like a hundred years ago of people in those springs, but those springs were captured um, also about a hundred years ago for irrigation downstream. So there was about a hundred families irrigating down there. Um, they started noticing the springs um, drying up or the flows decreasing. And, uh, and there was a lot of debate back 
Then um, when it first started happening, it was at the drought, you know, was a pumping seven miles away really causing this to happen. Um, and ultimately some, some scientific studies that were done by the state showed that, that that's happening. It's quite clear today. There's a strong relationship between groundwater pumping and, uh, and spring flow. So the drought ended and the, the, uh, uh intermittent flows continued and and people pretty quickly figured out well it's it's the pumping and you know the springs pretty much dried up for several decades you know once once the irrigation district went in um irrigation district once the irrigators um came in um you know they did go dry for for several decades and uh and they've come back intermittently kind of depending what's going on with with agriculture um, and, uh, and they've been coming back intermittently over the last 10 years and, and intermittent being during the off irrigation season, which is the winter months, we've been seeing those springs come back. So Charlie, what was the impact on Fort Stockton? I imagine that the springs were, um, a key feature for that city. Yeah. So there's the impact of families, right? So Robert mentioned the um, downstream irrigators that were using surface water on Comanche Creek. There's about a hundred farms downstream and a pretty um, extensive set of irrigation canals. Um, these days, those canals, for the most part, kind of blown up and dried away. You can still see remnants. Um, but those families, um, ultimately represented by the Water Control and Improvement District that provided that irrigation water, um, as Robert will talk about, um, found through the court system that their surface water rights would not be defended, um, were not protected under state law at the time. Um, so that farming went away um, from from that region just north of the city of Fort Stockton. Um, for the town itself, though, um, it lost a title that at one time people across West Texas and New Mexico would have recognized it as, which was the Spring City of Texas. That was the way that Fort Stockton marketed itself. You can still find kind of historical marketing material. Um, there was an annual event, the Fort Stockton Water Carnival, um, held the third weekend of every July um, which at the time would have brought in thousands of people from across the region um, to see things from, you know, horses, people on horses diving into water to regular high diving to synchronized swimming um, and beauty pageants. And in fact, um, one of the reasons that I really fell in love with the city of Fort Stockton um, in learning more about Comanche Springs was discovering that the the Fort Stockton Water Carnival persists. It was it was temporarily interrupted by two things in its history: first World War II, um, and then by the springs uh, failing in the early fifties. And so there were a few years where the carnival was not held, but. Ultimately, in the 1950s, the, the county uh, decided that um, the springs were not likely to come back anytime soon. And um, they had already invested in building a really beautiful stone bathhouse. It's still there to this day um, and put in a pool that now kind of hovers over Comanche Springs. It's built on what you could effectively call stilts that are sunk into the spring bed. Um, if you've ever been to Fort Stockton, um, you'll recognize there's the, the, the bathhouse, the stone bathhouse, this Olympic sized pool adjacent to the pool is a cage. And inside the cage, there's, um, kind of a rock cave leading down into the earth. That's, that's big chief. That's part of this spring complex that would have extended up into Rooney park. Um, 
and the whole complex of which would have flowed and created a really delightful stream through that park system. Um, so today, if you go to the Fort Stockton Water Carnival, I'm happy to report you can still see synchronized swimming. That tradition has persisted. Um, but now really, I mean, most people who know of Fort Stockton know it because maybe they do some agricultural business or oil filled business. Many, many more Texans know it because it's maybe the place you stop and get gas on I-10 before you head to the Big Bend or somewhere east if that's the direction you're taking. But there's not a, a lot of reason for people who are just winding their way through West Texas to stop these days. You know, and I, over the years, I've stopped in at Comanche Springs, just kind of knowing a bit about the history. And uh, as my wife says, why do we always stop at dried up springs? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, there's something to see. There's historic markers and you can walk through Rooney Park and see the various springs of the system. Um, but uh, but when I heard that they were they had come back and, and were flowing um, a couple of years ago, yeah, I, I uh, basically did an overnight trip to go see it with my own eyes. And just seeing the resurrection of those springs was, was something special. Because a lot of times when these springs dry up, they're gone for good. You, know, you just don't see them coming back. And so it was almost a miracle to see flow in these, these uh, springs. And uh, kids playing in the springs. Uh, the water was reaching to the north side of Interstate 10. Um, crawdads. And it's like, where the hell did these crawdads <laughs> come from? Which our host, by the way, has a crawdad on his, his uh, sweater. That's right. A little, little logo on it. It looks like a flea to me from one direction. But, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but uh, um, but yeah, it's just just kind of miraculous to see that. And that's I think that's kind of when I got bit by the bug of wow, you know, maybe maybe you could bring these springs back. So there are a lot of cities in Texas who have spring in their names, and you know, I've, like like you, I've seen a lot of historical information. You know, people used to go on trips to various springs, and you know, some of them had med- medicinal properties. At least people thought that, and they'd go soak in the you know, Sulphur Springs or someplace like that. Radium Springs. Radium Springs. <laughs> Maybe not such a good idea but now, but, but uh, I, mean, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, it's a kind of a, in some ways, a lost, uh, you know, piece of, of, of our culture. Uh, and, you know, there's been a great effort to preserve Comal and San Marcos Springs. And uh, maybe maybe that effort is spreading. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But but first, I want to to get uh, some of the background on uh, why uh, the springs were allowed to go dry, or uh, whether there was an attempt to prevent that. Uh, what did the what was the the legal situation with the ground to to with regard to water law, groundwater so, service water law. So the legal situation, um, you know, at the so at the time the the drama started out there, um, Texas was ruled by the rule of capture, um, which pretty much means it, as a landowner, I can pump as much as my want, much as I want, uh, impacts to my neighbors um, be damned. Um, and and that that was the foundational law, and still is the foundational law in the state. Um, shortly before the issue began in Fort Stockton, the legislature, you know, really after a two-decade battle between 
municipal interests and farming interests on the High Plains, legislature allowed for the creation of groundwater conservation districts in 1949. Um, but but what happened in Fort Stockton to the Springs was, was starting around that time. So there was no groundwater conservation district. Um, you know, when the wells went in and the um, irrigators that relied on the spring became convinced that it was the, the pumpers up in the building area, and it was a number of, of pumpers, um, that, you know, at least 40, 50 folks. Um, uh, city of Fort Stockton also had wells at that time in the city, in the, in the Edwards formation that was feeding the springs. Um, you know, once, once they saw the flows decreasing, um, the irrigators put some wells near the springs to supplement the lost flow. Um, and then, uh, and then filed a lawsuit, um, that, uh, that they lost because of rule of capture in the district court. Um, the irrigators appealed. They lost that. They appealed to the Texas Supreme Court, and the Texas Supreme Court um, refused to take the case, which is essentially affirming the, the lower court's decisions that the rule of capture ruled. And so, as Charlene mentioned earlier, um, it's kind of an interesting situation where you know surface water that's owned by the state. If you have a right, it, it is a private property right. Um, groundwater is a private property right, and so you have the expression of one or use of one private property right impacting another, another private property right. But ultimately, spring flow is not protected from groundwater production. Things are different these days. Um, there's the possibility of protecting springs, as you mentioned, with Kamal and San Marcos earlier with the Edwards Aquifer Authority. But, uh, but back then, that was, that was really not an option. And so, um, you know, we, there is a groundwater district there now. But the situations that the situation that they have is is that kind of like the the horses are out of the barn door mm -hmm. already, and so they're kind of cats out of the cats bag. out of the bag, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, you want to use their um, one thing I want to mention because we have people listening from all over the country. Um, surface water is owned by the state in Texas, but groundwater is private property, which mm -hmm. is a unique thing for a lot of our listeners outside of Texas hearing about that. Um, so Charlene, um, why don't you uh, tell us about your organization and how it might uh, play a role in, um, in turning around what's happened at uh, Comanche Springs? Sure. So Texas Water Trade is a nonprofit. We were formed in January 2019, so we're still pretty young. Uh, but we were created to take the tool that the Texas legislature has been gesturing toward since the 1980s, at least, as its most preferred means of uh, reallocating water within the state of Texas, including and especially for environmental needs. Um, and that is uh, markets. So... Um, since the 1980s, we've had lots of people talking about the use of, of markets as a way of keeping water in stream for water quality, for species, uh, for recreational purposes. Uh, but it hasn't really reached to the scale that it has reached in other states. And just to give you a con some context, if you were to look in California, in Oregon, in Nevada, in each of those states where you've had active water trading for the environment, uh, the environment itself is the second largest uh, 
buyer of water in overall water markets, which is kind of phenomenal and surprising to many people. And in each of those states, you've had about $100 million worth of water leased or purchased for the purposes of fish migration or bird migration, whatever it might be. In Texas, we've had about a million dollars worth of environmental water traded, so only about 1%. Um, and so we were created to uh, both be able to uh, participate in, actively in water trades for the purpose of, of meeting environmental needs, um, and also to train up other practitioners in, in doing that so we can actually scale up that, that um, conservation tool. Um, in the context of Comanche, um, what that would look like is um, trying to come to agreement with the groundwater owners uh, who hold permits to that resource in the contributing zone of Comanche Springs and finding ways um, to compensate them for keeping some proportion of the water that they are allowed to pump today in the ground. And that could be um, through uh, long-term contracts, through leases, uh, through permanent acquisition of water rights and dedication to the springs. It could look like lots of different flavors, um, but that's really the the work that we've been bringing to the table with Meadows. So there's um, <clears throat> there's a great example of that already in existence in Texas, uh, and that's the Edwards Aquifer, where there is a habitat conservation plan, which is supported in part by uh, water that is uh, purchased or leased and, and put into an aquifer storage and recovery facility that's run by the San Antonio Water System. And so there's something for for farmers to look at and see that, hey, farming is continuing uh, and, you know, their, their water also provides a separate source of revenue uh, beyond its use for, for just farming. That's right. Um, the VISPO, the Voluntary Irrigation Suspension Program option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the O comes in. Optional um, is a, a really great example of um, a market tool that we could use in lots of different parts of the state. And it's kind of remarkable that it hasn't yet uh, taken shape in other places and been replicated because it's been so successful in the San Antonio Edwards. Um, and the last part that I want to say is exactly the point, Todd, what, what you just expressed, which is it's a way of helping farmers uh, diversify their income, um, increase their own financial resilience, and that's exactly what we're looking to do, both for the groundwater owners, but also for the city of Fort Stockton. It was amazing, as, as part of this work, we looked at the economic returns of a flowing spring and, and looked for comps. Um, Balmeray is a great comp, so to speak, and uh, the little tiny town of Balmeray every year gets, according to Texas A&M, which did a, a survey uh, in 2014, in that year, there was $4 million of non-local spending that happened in Balmeray. And that's not including people paying to get into Texas, uh, the, the state park that's there. It's not including lodging at the state park. So um, really, we're looking at this as an economic development tool for all the parties involved. So I did that for the first time this last summer. Uh, took a trip out there. Magical. Oh, my right. gosh. Um, I were, really wasn't prepared for it. Uh, <laughs> but it's something that everybody should, should do. Uh, Robert, so I want you to tell us a little bit about the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment and, and what your role is with regard to the Comanche Springs Project. Okay, well, the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment is a research center um, of Texas State University. 
And um, we do a number of different things, but, but I'd say the common theme is that we work at the, the human water, human environment interface. Um, so we do a lot of work with education and, and education research. We do a lot of work on watershed protection. And then um, on water conservation, one water issues, um, environmental flows, um, uh, almost anything on water, we're, we're involved in some way, shape, or form. Um, our, our involvement in the um, uh, Comanche Springs is kind of on the policy-relevant science side, so understanding the science to uh, help inform you know, what is needed um, to bring back Comanche Springs. Um, so understanding the hydrogeology and the flow, um, analyzing um, you know what what needs to happen to bring those springs back, um, as well as looking at the policy aspects of it as well, and, and assessing uh, you know feasibility there or presenting options to stakeholders um, in order to um, um, you know achieve a goal of bringing year-round spring flow back. And so um, we haven't mentioned this yet, but <clears throat> Robert is the the father of the groundwater availability model and models of Texas pretty much. That's father, t- not the grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've got the expertise to do that, to, to figure out um, what it's going to take and um, so you've got the, the science aspect of it and then you've got the, the 501c3 who's out there working with stakeholders. Are you so, Charlene, are you are you talking to people right now, trying to get them organized for this effort, uh, seeing what kind of reaction? That's right. So, in October, we started um, sending what's called term sheets, basically a, a preliminary indication of an offer for just a one-year lease for groundwater in the contributing zone. So we started circulating those in October, have been having conversations with irrigators as well as the city of Fort Stockton, which continues to um, draw its drinking water from the what's called the belding area, contributing zone. Those are all kind of mm-hmm. the same rough geographic area. That's where the water from Comanche Springs really comes from um, and have been developing kind of unique um, strategies for each of those entities and how we might be able to reduce water while still meeting their financial and, and business needs. So one year leases, but eventually if it succeeds, you could have multi-year leases and it, you know, that's what the Edwards has multi-year leases and it has short-term leases. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this thing could be done through um, a leasing market permanently, theoretically. Uh, you know, there's more security through permanent acquisition of a certain amount of water. Um, and at this point, we're trying to understand what will bring people to the table and, and how we can convince them to, to cooperate. And so there's a groundwater district and the, the district um, is, um, you know, the, the organization that uh, is determining how much water is available to be pumped from mm-hmm. the aquifer annually. And they will they play a role in this uh, project? Yeah, they, and yes, and, and they are playing a role, a very important role. So they've been uh, very supportive of, uh, of our efforts, um, been, been uh, great to work with as we've been looking at different options and trying to understand the system. And, uh, and then, you know, ultimately a lot of it does rest 
with the district as well as the constituents that the district serves in terms of, uh, um, you know, getting to where we would like to, to get. There's also, you know, that, that Pecos County Water Control and Improvement District, number one, um, that was in the lawsuit that Robert mentioned earlier. These were the, uh, this is the entity that represented the surface water users downstream of Comanche Creek. Um, they still exist. They're a municipal water provider today. They're using groundwater also from the Edwards Trinity. Um, but they still hold active surface water rights. And so they've also been a really important part of the local stakeholder community that we've been engaged with. And and I think one of the things that's really come through in the work that we've done engaging with community members and individual water rights owners is um, this is a, an economically dynamic part of the world. You have agricultural water use. You have a municipal, a small municipality that needs its own drinking water supply, but is within an area where there are going to be shortfalls in drinking water, municipal water availability. And you also are in the heart of the largest oil and gas play in the world. Um, And so part of what we've been looking at across that groundwater surface water divide is how do we make water available for for all of those different needs in a way that provides uplift to the community and to individuals and and having the cooperation of both the groundwater conservation district on the groundwater side and the the water control and improvement district on the surface water side, I think is key to figuring out how do we make this project work in a way that's not a zero sum game, which is usually how we think about water, especially in these parts of the world. And that's really what that, mm-hmm. that litigation represented, which was the zero sum game of water. I get mine and you get, you do not get yours. Right. Um, this is a somewhat rare instance, but I think replicable um, where really you could have everyone getting what they needed if we just think differently across that groundwater surface water divide. And the oil and gas play you're referring to is the Permian Basin, right? That's right. Okay. What, uh, what, and which groundwater district is it? I don't think we mentioned. Middle Pecos Groundwater Conservation District. One of, I guess, 100 or 101. I can't keep up. Yeah, how many it's around Texas 100 of them. <laughs> Depends how you count. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so how can someone uh, get involved if they'd like to in this effort? Um, well, you can, you can reach out to us. We don't, we don't have a web page um, for the project, but um, you can follow us on, on Twitter. Um, we'll have some links to your okay, websites, cool. too. I've, I've got a groundwater blog called so SecretOccultAndConcealed.com. Um, which are, those are, um, I'm not a devil worshiper, but those are words. For, <laughs> <laughs> although I've had some devil worshippers follow me. So uh, I'm probably terribly disappointed when they see a, a bunch of water well pictures, but in springs. But uh, so secret occult and conceal.com, but those words um, are from the Texas Supreme Court decision that established rule to capture in Texas in 1904, borrowed from the Ohio State Supreme Court. Um, but if you go to that, that website, um, I've, I've been doing some posting about Comanche Springs there. And then, um, you know, we are in a, a fundraising mode um, on uh, the work that Charlene's doing with. Uh, um, um, kind of pumping suspension. And so you could come to the Meadows Center and make a, a donation to the project. Just note in the comment that it's for Comanche Springs. Great. Excellent. 
Robert, Charlene, thank you so much for being part of Talk With Water. Well, we're happy to be here, um, and we're hopeful that maybe sometime this spring we might be able to get people out to Fort Stockton, too, to visit the springs. If you're on I-10 heading west or east, um, follow us, figure out whether or not it's worth stopping by. We, We even have an idea of maybe cooking up a crawfish boil to get people out there using the springs again, but certainly stop by... Take a photo of yourself swimming in, in Fort Stockton and post it. You want to see it. I like crawfish. I, I'll drive a, you know, a good ways to have a good crawfish pool. <laughs> you can go, what, 85 miles an hour on I-10. So those those five hours there, just fly. Yeah, right, right. Which means 90, really. Right? <laughs> true, true, but sh- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been Talk Plus Water, the podcast associated with the Texas Plus Water newsletter, which provides timely information on the spectrum of Texas water issues, including science, policy, and law. My guests today were Robert Mace, Interim Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment at Texas State University, and Charlene Lurig, CEO of Texas Water Trade. Texas Plus Water is published jointly by the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment, the Texas Water Journal, and the Texas Water Resources Institute at Texas A&M University. You can sign up for Texas Plus Water by visiting texasplusWater.org slash newsletter. My name is Todd Bogler, the host of Texas Plus Water. Let's talk water again soon.